It's good to be with you all this morning. We're going to keep going in Colossians, but next week is our D2S Sunday. So we're going to have a recap of all of our missions trips that have been out on the field over the last couple of weeks and months, so you don't want to miss that. And then Phil, the week after that, is going to pick up our series in Colossians. But I can't be alone in this. How many of you, raise your hand up nice and high, if you are a pet person, if you have a pet? All right. Lots of people in here have pets. Well, ever since I was little, I can remember having pets. And we had all kinds of things. We had dogs and cats and birds and lizards. And at one point, we even had a kind of an aquarium full of Madagascar hissing cockroaches as pets. Um, but my first solo pet I got when I was in the second grade, and it was a turtle. And I gave him a very original name for, as a second grader. I named him Shelly. And uh, if you are a parent of someone who is a kid that's a, that's a, a pet person, I'm going to give you some advice. Do not buy your kid a turtle. They live forever. Uh, I, I got Shelly when I was, you know, little, second grade, and he died last year. <laughs> he was over 25 years old, but, but now we still have pets downstairs in my office. I've got a fish tank that the kids like to come and look at, and at home we have six chickens and two cats and two dogs, and our dogs' names are uh, Ivy and Easton. Ivy's the Cocker Spaniel there, and Easton's kind of a Border Collie cattle dog mix. Now, I don't like to play favorites because both dogs in my eyes are kind of equally important and they both play a big role in our lives. But Easton isn't quite happy being on an equal playing field with the other dog. You know, he's kind of a jealous dog and he makes it quite obvious that he wants to be the center of attention. He's constantly pushing Ivy out of the way when you're petting her and he's always in your face when you're trying to do something else that might be important. For example, last night I'm trying to get some work done, and he decides he is more important than whatever it was I was working on. Uh, he's a fun dog, but his problem is that he's not content having equal importance amongst other things. He's not happy just having a prominent role in my life. He wants to be more important than Ivy, and he wants to be more important than everything else that it is I'm doing. And so we might say that Easton has this desire to be preeminent. You see, there's a difference between something that is prominent and something that is preeminent. If something is prominent, that means it's important. But it may be on an equal playing field with other things that are just as important. And that's the square that I want Easton to live in, right? I, I want him to just be equal to everybody else. But he doesn't like living there. He wants to be preeminent, which means he wants to be the most important thing in my life. He wants to have the most influence on me of anything that I try to do. And when we think about this term in relation to the Bible, in the Bible, it speaks about Jesus. And when it speaks of Jesus, it means that there is nothing and no one higher in position or authority or influence. And the text we're going to look at this morning in Colossians says that in everything, Christ should be preeminent. He should be preeminent. And so the question that we're faced with this morning is this. 
Is Jesus preeminent in my life, or is he just prominent in my life? And I think for a lot of us, Jesus is prominent. Yeah, we would say that, that he's important, that we love him, and that he gets some of our time. But practically, there are a lot of other things in our lives that are prominent as well. There are things that we treat equally as important to us as Jesus. And the problem here is that we can't have a Jesus who is prominent. Because if he's prominent, he can't be both prominent and preeminent. If he's preeminent, then he is above all else. He's above everything else that has an important role. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is and must be in our lives preeminent. And it seems like this problem of a prominent Jesus, but not a preeminent Jesus, is one that dates back to the beginning of the church. As I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, in Colossae at this time, they were dealing with false teachers who were suggesting that they needed Jesus plus something else in order to be truly spiritual, right? They needed Jesus plus self-denial, or they needed Jesus plus visions, or Jesus plus mysticism, or Jesus plus legalism in order to be truly spiritual. And really what that was, was a denigration of the preeminence of Christ. It was a suggestion that he be simply prominent in their spiritual lives amongst all of these other pieces. They did not want him to be first and foremost. And so Paul writes this Christ hymn that we began looking at last week. And in it, he presents to us a theology of Jesus to combat this false teaching that he, that suggested that he might be prominent and not preeminent. So, I want you to turn with me this morning to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 to 20 this morning, and we're going to see that Jesus can't be prominent and that he has to be preeminent. Verse 18, Colossians chapter 1 says this, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So last week, I mentioned that verses 15 to 20 are a hymn that Paul likely composed for the early church so that they could very easily remember who Jesus was and what he had done. And last week, we looked at the first stanza. And in that stanza, we learned about how Jesus is the creator of everything. And not only that, he is the sustainer of everything. And we looked at his relationship as the creator to creation. This stanza answers the same two questions that we answered last week. If you remember, we answered who is Jesus on one hand, and on the other we looked at what it is that he did or what it is that he does. Well, this week, those same two questions are going to be answered, but the emphasis in this second stanza is a little bit different. It's not so much concerned about Christ's relationship to creation as it is with Christ's relationship to the church. And you'll see 
that everything in this stanza drives towards that statement in the second half of verse 18, in that everything he might be preeminent. Everything before that comes towards it, and everything after it flows from it. So let's dig in here, and I want you to see in the first part of verse 18, Paul answers that initial question of who is Jesus. And he answers that question with three statements. He says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And then he goes on and he says that he is the beginning. And finally, he says that he is the firstborn from the dead. And the reality of of those three things and the outcome of them is that in everything he might be preeminent. So these things are true, and because of that, he should be preeminent. And I want to unpack how those things relate here now. That first metaphor of the body is one that's common in the New Testament. I mean, we see a lot of different pictures in the New Testament about the church. It's described a lot of different ways. But the body is the most common one. You might think of Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that use the human body to illustrate the unity and yet the diversity that is present in Christ's church. But in this passage, that's not what he's concerned about. The focus is not on the body. The focus here is on the head. And as the head of the church, Christ has multiple roles because headship includes a few different aspects. And I want to point those out to you now. Headship includes the idea of authority. That is that Christ is sovereign over the church. And second, it includes the idea of control. That is that Christ leads the church in the direction that God wants it to go. And third, it has the idea of sustenance. That's the idea that Christ is the force that holds the body together. And it's him that supplies the body with its growth. All of the growth in the body comes from Christ himself. Paul picks this idea up in the second chapter of Colossians, if you just flip the page. Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. In addressing the false teachers, he says this, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. You see, a body can lose a whole lot of parts, right? You can lose your fingers, you can lose your arms, you can lose your legs, and you still function, right? You're still a body. And you can get a lot of knees replaced, right? So a lot of you guys know this by experience. A lot of your parts can be changed out. New knees, new hips, new shoulders. And after a couple of months of rehab, you're right back at it and you're just fine again. I mean, they can even replace a multitude of your organs, right? They can do liver transplants. They can do kidney transplants. They can do lung transplants. Matter of fact, they can even put you on a heart and lung bypass machine, take your heart out of your body, put a new one in, and give you a new heart. But have you ever heard of a head replacement? No. No right? They can't transplant your brain. They can't replace your head. They've never done one. And why can't they do one? Because the head is what gives the body its direction. It tells the body everything that it is to do, and it provides the body with its life and with its sustenance. 
And if you separate the head from the body, you die, right? Because nothing can survive without a head. And that's the picture that Paul is giving here of the church. The church is just like that. We are dependent, fully and entirely dependent upon Christ for our survival. You know, and this text in particular has in mind the universal church. But I think that the application extends beyond that to the local church as well. Every local church is dependent upon Christ for its very life because he is the one who supplies the growth to the body. And if the church decides to wander away from Christ and to wander away from his word, it severs itself from the head. And I believe this is why you see a lot of liberal denominations closing their doors left and right. They have abandoned the head in favor of the wisdom of the world. And Christ isn't preeminent any longer in those churches. They may pay lip service to him. He may be prominent, but he's not preeminent. And I want you to see here there's a connection between Christ as the head of the body and his preeminence. The outcome of him being the head of the body is that in everything he might be preeminent. You see, the church is to make Christ the center of everything that it does. He's to be the center of the body because the body represents him to the world. And so we have to constantly be evaluating, is our preaching Christ-centered? Are our ministries helping people connect to Christ? Are our programs reaching people with the gospel? Are our discipleship efforts helping people to grow into the image of Christ? Or do we care more about traditions than we care about what Christ has called us to do? You know, I, I believe from the bottom of my heart that if as a body we continue to look to Christ for our direction and look to Him alone, and if we live in light of His Lordship, I think He will continue to provide growth to this body. I mean, after all, Matthew chapter 18, Christ Himself says, I will build my church. And that's a reference, once again, to the universal church. But Christ grows the universal church through the growth of local churches. And I believe that he is passionate about using churches that are concerned with having the right outcome. Churches that are concerned with making him preeminent in everything that they do. And so, folks, I, I think that if we focus on that, if we focus on the preeminence of Christ in everything that we do, God will continue to use Berean to magnify his name in Jesus. But there's two more things here I want you to notice that are connected to Christ's preeminence besides him being the head of the body. The text says that he is the beginning. That is, the firstborn from the dead. And these two statements are closely related because firstborn actually restates the idea of beginning. And so I want to unpack them together. If you think about that first word, beginning, we, we usually think of it in a temporal manner, right? It means something that was first in time. You know, if I was to say to you that I went on vacation at the beginning of July, what do I mean? I mean that I went on vacation the first few days of July, right? It has a temporal understanding. But in the New Testament, this word beginning can also mean to have primacy in rule or primacy in authority. 
And here, when it's used in relation to the church, I think it picks up both those aspects. It pick up, picks up a temporal aspect as well as an authority aspect. A, a better way to think of it might be to think of it as the word founder. Founder, right? Uh, uh, for example, Jeff Bezos is the founder of Amazon. And when we think of him as the founder of Amazon, what we mean and what we realize is that he was the beginning of the company, right? It was due to his ideas, his creativity, and his hard work that ultimately Amazon came to fruition. But there's another way we can think of him as the founder of the company. It means that he has ultimate authority. You know, when it comes to Amazon, the buck stops with Jeff Bezos because he's the one in charge. He is the one with the most authority. He is the one that gets to make the final decisions. And so if you think about it that way, and you think about Jesus as the beginning, he's the one with ultimate authority. He is the one who is the Lord of the church. But beyond that, he is the Lord of redemption. And that's an idea we get when we think about that second at part of the phrase, firstborn from the dead. That's obviously a reference to the resurrection, right? And the resurrection, when, when Jesus was resurrected, it began the program of redemption. He died, he rose again, people could now get saved because their sins were paid for. And so if you think of him as the founder, he is the initiator of the resurrection. And ultimately, he is supreme because he is the founder of the resurrection program. And you might say, well, Pastor Spencer, you got the cart before the horse here. He wasn't the first person to be resurrected. Matter of fact, Jesus himself raised three people from the dead. And you would be right if you made that assertion. But... Those weren't really resurrections in the truest sense of the word. I like to think of them more as resuscitations, right? All of those people were dead. They came back to life. But then what? They died again, right? Jesus lives forevermore as a result of his resurrection. He was the first person to die and then rise with a glorified body, never to die again. He's the one who broke death's hold on humanity, and he's the one who initiated the eschatological resurrection program. He, his resurrection guarantees your resurrection, and it guarantees my resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 makes this clear. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You see, Christ's resurrection is vital to Christian theology, and I believe that Paul included it here because it demonstrates his once and for all defeat of death. It demonstrates his supremacy over the grave, and it guarantees our future hope of resurrection. And, and the result here of Christ being the head of the church and, and the result of him being the founder of this resurrection program is that in everything he might be preeminent. You see, Christ has always been sovereign. We talked about that the last couple of weeks, right? He has always been sovereign over creation. But 
in his resurrection, he established his power over a fallen and a rebellious world to a new degree. And because he did that, he deserves preeminence. He must have first place in the church because he has first place in all of creation. And if he has first place in creation and he has first place in the church, he must have first place in your life and he must have first place in my life. And that's a fact, but it's also a challenge to us. Jesus is preeminent, and he must be preeminent. And so that's my question for you this morning. Is Jesus preeminent in my life, or is he just prominent? And I'm here to tell you, he can't be just prominent. He can't be an equal among other things. He deserves and he has to have first place. He has to be more important than everything that we love and everything that we hold nearest and dearest to our hearts. The problem for us is that for a lot of us, Jesus is simply one important part of our lives. You know, your job might be just as important to you as Jesus is. And I think for men in particular, this is an easy trap because we tend to wrap our identities up in what we do. We find our worth in our work. And so our work will often become our number one priority. You know, men, I, I know it's not hard for you to find some time to work an overtime shift to make some extra money. It's not hard for you to find time to do a project at your house because in those things, we find value. But for a lot of us, it is hard to find time to, to spend with Jesus, right? To spend time in the Word and to spend time getting to know Him through prayer. But, but women are, are, are similar, you know. Often, we might love our families more than we love Jesus, and I might step on some toes here, but I, I think for women, this is a tempting trap. You know, women are, are typically highly relational, they're highly family-driven, and they have a tendency to find their identities as wives and as mothers. And that's good. Those are roles that Christ has called you to. But that does not make him preeminent in your life if you're finding your identity as a mother. We need to first find our identities in Christ. We need to love him above all the other people that we love. And if we do that, then our love for him will overflow in our relationships and we will more love the people around us as Christ has called us to do. You know, but, but I think there's another aspect that, that's overlooked often. And that is that there are many things in our lives that get our time and our attention more than Jesus does. You know, in America, I think that entertainment has a prominent, if not a preeminent place in our lives, right? Everyone looks for some form of entertainment, whether it's on your phone or it's social media or it's the TV or it's some sports game or it's some hobby that you have. We look to entertainment as a form of rest. It, it, it's a form of relaxation for us. And when we do that, we are removing Jesus from his place of preeminence because he is the one who's to have first place in everything, right? Right? And that means he's to have first place in how we rest, even. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
You know, when, when we turn to something other than Jesus for fulfillment, or if we don't do what he has asked us to do, then he isn't preeminent, and he's probably just prominent. And you may be thinking, you know what, I, I fall into one of those camps. There's an area of my life where Jesus is probably prominent and not preeminent. And if that's you, I've got a simple equation that has helped me over the years to be focused on the authority of Jesus in everything that I do. And I, I want to share this tool with you. You can plug into this tool just about every, any area of your life, and it will help you to realize his authority. It's this. If Christ has preeminence over my, you fill in the blank, then how does my life reflect that? How does my life reflect his lordship, reflect his authority. For example, I might say, if Christ has preeminence over my character, then am I Christ-like? If I'm not Christ-like in my character, then, then what do I need to modify? You see, it gets your brain thinking about, hey, what changes do I need to make? Another one, if Christ has preeminence over my relationships, then do I treat others like Christ did? You know, if you ask that question, it's going to point out that you might need to be more forgiving or you need to be more compassionate or loving or gentle or patient. You know, finally, here's another one. If Christ has preeminence over my decisions, then am I seeking to follow his will? Am I reading and spending time in the word of God so that he will lead me to a knowledge of his will? Because when I know what God wants from me, when I know what he expects from me, I can live accordingly and he is glorified, right? He has preeminence at that point. But there will be times when, when you answer those questions and you're going to need to make a change, right? And as simple human beings, we do not like change. You know, all of our being fights against change. You're going to say, well, I, I don't really have to do that. You know, I, he's prominent, yeah, in that part. But over here, over here, he, he's preeminent, right? You know, you might be sitting here thinking, well, this guy, he's just, he's just too Jesus-y. And we're, he's just making stuff up. And I don't really have to do all that. I don't have to make all these big changes. Wh whatever your objection might be to living in light of Christ's preeminence, Paul answers those objections with the next two verses. And, and he concludes here with a reason why we ought to live in such a way that Christ has preeminence. Notice what these verses say. Verse 19 begins with four. And four is an explanatory conjunction. These verses then give a reason why Paul could say what he did about Christ's preeminence. All right? Verse 19 for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, the ultimate reason for Christ's preeminence is his work of reconciliation. But Paul doesn't launch right into that. He first goes into a discussion of Christ's deity. He says that Christ, in him the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell. And this is the last phrase of who Jesus is. He is God. And as God, that gave him the authority with which he could accomplish reconciliation. You know, this idea of fullness is a common one in, in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 talks about this in verse 9. It says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
And Paul picks up this concept repeatedly because he's trying to demonstrate to the Colossians that Christ is sufficient for everything that they need, right? And, and this idea of fullness is an interesting one. It has an idea of totality, totality. It means that Jesus has all divine power. He has all the divine attributes and that his character and his nature are identical to that of God. And he's all that God is because he is God. And because he's God, then he can do the work of reconciliation. And so with that statement, Paul transitions into our final discussion in this hymn of who Jesus is and what he has done. The text says here that he threw him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of God of his cross. Now, first look, that might be a little bit of a confusing sentence, and so I want to spend a few minutes unpacking this idea of reconciliation and really looking at what that means. Christ's work on the cross had a lot of different aspects to it and a lot of effects on us, and reconciliation is one of those effects. You see, as sinners, we had a problem. Our sin separated us from God. Because God is holy and we are not holy, we were at enmity with him. And reconciliation is God's solution to that problem. In reconciliation, there's an establishing of a relationship between two parties who were formerly at odds with one another. And Christ accomplished that by dying on the cross and paying the penalty for sin. When sin was paid for, he removed enmity, making people savable, all right? Reconciliation is not the same thing as justification. It makes people savable. And most often, when we think of reconciliation, we define it in terms that are personal, between us and God, right? That's the relationship that's restored in reconciliation. And because we think of reconciliation in strictly personal terms, this verse confuses us. Because notice what it says. All things, whether on heaven or earth, are the object of reconciliation. That's a very universal statement, and we know that it's cosmic in its scope because all things was used twice in this hymn already to refer to all of creation. Those things invisible and visible, right? Spirit beings and material beings. And Christ, as the creator and the sustainer of all things, has a relationship with all of creation. And that relationship has been marred due to the effect of sin. And so all of creation needs to be brought back into a proper relationship to God and to Christ. And this verse says that things are reconciled to Christ, not only because he is the creator, but because he is the intermediary between God and man. And now, specifically, I think there are three different realms which are in need of correction due to the effects of sin. The spirit world needs correction, the human world, and the material world. Revelation talks about the spirit world needing correction. It talks about a third of the angels falling from, from heaven due to pride, right? The sin of pride caused a third of the angels to fall. Genesis chapter 3, of course, records the human fall. And Romans chapter 5 tells us that due to the fall of man, sin and death came to all people and continue to come to all people. 
And then finally, the material world was affected by, as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve. Now, Genesis chapter 3, right there where the curse happens, says that the ground was cursed. The ground. And Romans 8 says that the creation was subject to frustration. It says that it is in bondage to decay and that it groans. And so you can see, you can see this here. All things, every area of creation were affected by sin. And so the work of Christ in redemption needs to extend to every area of creation. Jesus has been given this task of making everything right that has gone wrong. And by his power and by his authority, because he is preeminent, he will correct every aspect of creation. It's not enough to just reconcile people, because that doesn't fully deal with the sin problem. Sin would still be present in creation if he just dealt with it in people. And so to stop there would be to rob Christ of his glory. All of the widespread effects of sin need to be done away with. And so all things are reconciled. And the idea of reconcile here is that all things will be put into their proper relationship to Christ. And that will either be through salvation, through renewal and restoration, or through judgment. But ultimately, Christ will present this properly arranged universe to God at the end of time, and God will be glorified because of it. And the restoration of all things back to God is possible because the text concludes by saying that Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross. You know, this is a, I think this is just a fitting conclusion. The reason that it's possible for anything and anyone to be reconciled, to be restored into a relationship with God, is because Christ shed his blood on the cross. And his death brought not only peace between God and man, but ultimately his death will restore harmony to the universe. And it's because of those reasons. It's because Christ has reconciled all things to himself, because he has paid the penalty for sin and made peace, that he can demand preeminence. You see, Jesus is the only person who can accomplish anything cosmic in scope. And he has reconciled all things to himself. And because he has done that, he is worthy of preeminence. You know, that phrase, that in everything he might pre be, be preeminent, is probably the single line in Scripture I have spent the most time thinking about. The effects are just so wide-ranging. Christ deserves to be preeminent. He deserves first place in your life. Because he's the one that created the world. He's the one that sustains the world. He's the one who's the head of the church. He's the one who broke death's hold on humanity. He, and he is the one who guarantees our future eternal life and guarantees our resurrection. And he's the one who's one day going to come back and conquer sin and Satan once and for all and ultimately reconcile all things back to God. And so he's the only one who is worthy of our worship. He's the only one who's worthy of our praise. He is the one who is supreme over all. And yet, he is the one, as we've seen in this book, who is close enough to care. He is the one who is sufficient enough to meet all of your needs. And so, because he is all of those things, he needs to be preeminent. 
He can't be just prominent in our lives, and He can't just be prominent in our church. He can't just be equal to our hobbies. He can't be equal to our jobs. He can't even be equal to our families. We have to love Him more than we love anyone else, and we have to serve Him more passionately than we do anything else. We have to desire Him more than we desire anything else. You remember the definition of preeminence. It's something that's first in authority, first in influence. And what that means is that we have to live under the lordship of Christ. If he's the Lord of our lives, we will do what it is he has asked us to do. It means that we allow him to have the ultimate influence in our lives. We allow him to control our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions. But how do you know, right? How do you know if Christ is preeminent in your life? I want to close with this. There's two questions that I think you can ask to determine whether Christ is prominent or preeminent in your life. And they'll sound familiar. The first is, are we doing what he has told us to do? Are we walking worthy of him? And second, are we seeking to glorify him in each and every aspect of our lives? And if you can't answer those questions with a yes, Jesus may be prominent in your life, but he's not preeminent. And if he's simply prominent in your life, if he's just one among many, if he's just one of many priorities, you need to make a change. You need to acknowledge that he is Lord and then begin living in light of his authority. And if you're willing to do that, Christ will take you under his wing and he will make you increasingly more into his image. And that's what this life is all about, right? Glorifying him and becoming more like him. And so you can't walk out of here this morning and do nothing because it's not okay for the creator to be equal to the creation. It's not okay for the preeminent Lord Jesus to just be a priority in your life. It's not even okay for the preeminent Lord Jesus to be prominent in your life. He deserves, he needs, and he shall have first place in everything. May it be so in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we are so thankful for your death on the cross that redeemed us, that reconciled us to you. And Lord, may we live in light of the fact that you are in charge and we are not. May we live in light of the fact that you should have first authority and first influence in our lives. Lord, if we can submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit and do that, reflect your authority in our lives, Lord, I believe that you will use us and you will use this church and all of Christianity to change the world. And Lord, may we leave here today then with that truth firmly embedded in our hearts that we want to be people who make much of you by making you preeminent in everything that we do. We pray in your holy and precious name. Amen. You, uh, you are dismissed. Let me just remind you that the ushers will be in the back taking our monthly retiring offering. The retiring offering is money that we use to help people in our church and in our community who are in need. And so it is an excellent way for our church to make much of Jesus and to make him preeminent by doing what he has called us to do and helping those who are in need. So I just remind you of that. Have a good week.